everyone, welcome to the I Dare You podcast. This podcast that is all about you and helping you reach the big goals that you have for your life. And what next steps will you take to get there? I'm your host, Darren Johnson, and welcome to episode 64. Now, for those who are new to this podcast, a lot of you are tuning in every single week. I invite you to subscribe and to share and to follow. Now, you know, every Tuesday we drop a brand new episode, but also every Friday I send out an email to your inbox where I encourage you with something that I learned that week or something in the podcast that you can use in your situation that week. Now, you can subscribe to get that email by going to idareyoupod.com and enter your email there and you're in. I promise not to abuse the privilege. I think you'll find it valuable. Now, our guest this week, I can't wait for this. Uh, What an interview. He is Dr. Andrew Lamb. Dr. Lamb, first off, as he'll tell you, he is a dad and proud of it. He's also the assistant professor of ophthalmology at University of Massachusetts Medical School. He's an attending surgeon at Bay State Med Center in Springfield, Massachusetts. And he lives in Massachusetts with his wife and four kids. He's also an award-winning author. His most recent book is The Masters of Medicine, Our Greatest Triumphs in the Race to Cure Humanity's Deadliest Diseases. His writing has appeared in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Now, what can you expect to learn from this episode? Um, Well, everyone's going to get something different, but here are just a few things that I think you're going to pick up. First, mavericks have always changed the world, and they've changed the world of medicine. And how can we exhibit some of these same traits that some of the great mavericks in history have exhibited? Second, you're going to learn how self-confidence combined with taking action, bold action, can create a whole lot of luck. And third... We've all been through a lot over these last few years, haven't we? But we'll put things in historical perspective that will give you a much-needed dose of optimism in the future. Doesn't that feel good? Okay, now, with that as a setup, I think it's time to meet Dr. Lamb. He's ready. Episode 64 is ready. Here, everyone, is Dr. Andrew Lamb. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. It's really good having you here. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Andrew, I've been looking forward to this. Um, You know, you are so many things. You heard the introduction that I gave of you. And how would you describe who you are? I'm not sure if you are an (laughs) author or a surgeon or a historian. Tell us that first. first. First, I'm a husband and a father. I've got four kids and I spend most of my time chaperoning the kids, like driving them to their various activities. So like a lot of dads out there, I, I think that that's probably my main role. But yes, as a, in my day job, I'm a retina surgeon. That's an ophthalmologist who specializes in retinal diseases like retinal detachments, macular holes, diabetic retinopathy. Uh, but anyone who knows me knows that I love history and I always have. And that inspired me to write books basically with uh, history as the inspiration. I've written a couple of nonfiction books and a couple of historical novels. So where did that love for history come from? Where did that all begin for you? (laughs) That's a great question. I I don't know. It's just kind of innate. I was one of those kids. I grew up in Springfield, Illinois, which is the capital of the state, uh, the the town where Abraham Lincoln was from. Uh, Like, you know, it's kind of in the middle of the cornfields, uh, but um, it was a nice place to grow up. And I was just one of those kids who would go to the library uh, and I, I would read all the history and the biography books in the children's section of the library. I remember there'd be like a whole long shelf and it was my goal over the summer to like read all of them. (laughs) So I I don't know. I I think some people, you know, I learned as I grew up, not everybody loves history, especially when you're a kid. And, um, but I always enjoyed it. When we'd go to battlefields, it was like going to Disneyland for me. So I guess I'm just one of those weird people, but um, I guess I, the inspiration 
is often like looking at the world around us and thinking about how it came to be the way it was, the way it is rather. So um, it's just something that I've always loved. Yeah. You know, I went on your Instagram and uh, just to learn a little bit more about you, I wasn't creeping on you. I was just learning more. And sure enough, there of, of all your Instagram posts, there one was from the uh, American Museum of Natural History in New York. It was a picture of a giant mm. geode, if I'm pronouncing that right. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's incredible. And then also, uh, a, a, from the U.S. Army Museum, it looked like a Confederate type setting. And yes, yeah, history museum. is part of who you are, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, my poor kids, I, I drag them to battlefields. <laughs> I, my, the most famous thing is it's right off the road um, on the, wherever we're driving. There's um, some place to go to. I'm one of these guys who um, has a goal to, to visit every uh, national park site, all over 400, not just a major national park, but also every <laughs> battlefield and historic site. So I'm one of these guys who has one of those national park passports and gets the stamp. Yes. And I, I made my kids do it. And one of the funny stories is we'd go to like the, the ranger and I'd try to like build it up for my kids when they were little. And I'd say to the ranger, you know, this is very popular, right? To do these passports. And she looks at me, she looks at my kids and she goes, yeah, especially among retirees. So <laughs> I, I, I wasn't really able to sell it to the kids. I but. love it. What is the what is the one national park that you're just dying to get to? Maybe a little obscure, or maybe it's you know one we oh, all know. Wow. Is there one? You know, I've been to most of the big ones. Um, I, I haven't been to Glacier yet, which I think is oh. in your neck of the woods. So I've got to get up there for sure. Oh, now now oh, we are going to be fast friends. Glacier you go there park, all the time, I, probably. <laughs> no, you know what? It's it's eight hours north. It's not. It's it's close. You know, it okay. is a it's a long weekend. But I worked there in college, and really? some of the oh my gosh, it was the best summer of my life. I worked at Lake McDonald Lodge, and so I, and it's so oh. wonderful because it's it's difficult to get to, as you know. It's not it's not yes. on a way to anywhere, so you really got to be pretty intentional about it. So, sure. I'm living through you on this uh, up in this neck of the woods. If you ever come out here for a road trip, we have many things, but uh, my goodness, uh, Native American history. We have mm -hmm. the um, Lewis and Clark Trail which one of the things, my goals when I retire <laughs> is I want to go on the Lewis and Clark trail. And I mean, go deep because when I'm going on I-94, Andrew, there are these Brown signs on the freeway everywhere that yes. indicate, you know, uh, uh, Lewis and Clark encampment 40 miles this way. And this oh my way. goodness. That's and there's just not enough. There's not enough time, but I'll tell, I'm you, gonna I'll do tell you another story. I was doing a, you know, when you're in medicine, like me, you have all these things you got to apply for cycle after cycle, med school, internship, residency, fellowship. So I was interviewing in Oregon and I, I ducked out of the, of the tour. So I could zip over to Fort Clatsop on the coast <laughs> where the Lewis and Clark um, spent uh, like time. Yes. Basically. And, uh, and that was great. I don't really remember the program that well, but I definitely remember the board. <laughs> Good for you. I love it. Okay. So now you're a fan of history. Now, um, why not be a history teacher, history professor? You, you took yeah, a different turn a with question. your life. Where did medicine come into this? So, you know, I, I, I loved history, but I happened to have a father who was an interventional cardiologist. And in our small city of Springfield, Illinois, it was not unusual for me or my family to get literally stopped in the mall or at Sam's Club to buy it by by a patient or by a person who would thank my dad for mm -hmm. saving his life or saving his mom's life 
you know, those, you know, you know, someone had a heart attack, my dad would go in at all hours to basically open up their coronary arteries. Um, so those kinds of experiences left a really indelible mark on me. You know, I could see that being a physician could be a really um, fulfilling and gratifying career. So I went to college and I studied history. I love military history. I studied uh, U.S. Um, relations with China and especially World War II in China. But I also knew that I had this desire to um, be a physician. And when I went, then I went to medical school. And when I was in medical school, I was one of these kind of impatient people in general. So I, I love to help people right away. I wasn't that cerebral. So I chose surgery instead of medicine. And I love the eye. I love sight. I think sight is so precious to us. Um, and also it turned out that ophthalmology was a bit of an easier lifestyle than my father's, which mm. I was also happy about. So that's, that's how I ended great. up being a retina surgeon. And now I live in Massachusetts um, and um, I'm an prof assistant professor at UMass. Right, what, what, do you love, what do you love most about what, what you do? You know, the, <laughs> there's a special feeling when you know that you know, you're able to do things that very few people can because of the training that it went that went into it. There aren't that many retina specialists um, generally in the country because of, of, of the specialized nature that we do, uh, um, uh, the specialized nature of the um, surgeries that we do. So it's very, very meaningful. When people go to an eye doctor, there's all different kinds of ophthalmologists. You know, there's LASIK surgeons, cataract surgeons. Are, 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 there's so many amazing things that we can do and we're so lucky to have them. I wrote a book called Saving Sight about that about those uh, amazing inventors. But in my field, it's different. People come to us with a big problem. They're literally going blind often or they're already wow. almost blind. So it's kind of um, very serious always. And the nice thing is that when we can help, it can be very, uh, very dramatic. And there's really nothing to do but make it better. You know, a lot of times we've almost got nothing to lose when we decide to do certain surgeries. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we have limits to what we can do. So it can be a bit sobering and sometimes quite sad, to be honest. So it takes a little bit of a, a recognition that there's some good and bad with any field that you go into. And my field is no different. Well, I think that when you had a, when, you know, when you go into medicine, you're basically sacrificing your twenties and you are working really hard to get to a point and I remember in training, I was, I would think to myself, oh my goodness, I'm studying so hard, working so hard. Wouldn't it be terrible if I got hit by a bus? And like, I never got to actually be a surgeon, <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it literally gets that long. And by the time you're in your mid, you're in the earlier mid thirties and you're done and you finally are the guy who helps people and saves their sight or has to be the person who has that difficult this, this conversation with a family when you weren't able to save their sight. I mean, you need to feel prepared to do all of those things. And so it just becomes a part of you, you know, yeah. you do this, you do this fulfilling job because you can help people. And that's the thrilling thing. Um, this is what I chose and I, I really enjoy what I get to do. Love it. I can tell, I can tell. All right. Now you are a author, a brand new book called the masters of medicine, our greatest triumphs in the race to cure humanity's deadliest diseases. You, again, you're looking at this from a historical lens of all the topics you could have chosen or angles on things. Why this one? 
Yeah, you know, I think it comes back to my love of history. Um, I had written a book called Saving Sight about the amazing um, discoverers of what we get to do as, as eye surgeons. And I had learned that there were some amazing um, stories of serendipity, perseverance, sometimes mistakes that led to discoveries. I'll just give one example briefly. Um, we will all get cataract surgery if we live long enough. This is an incredibly elegant surgery that takes only minutes. And the guy who discovered the artificial lens that will give us the sight after the cataract is removed was a British ophthalmologist during the Battle of Britain in World War II. And he happened to examine a downed fighter pilot who had unfortunately gotten plexiglass shards from his canopy embedded in his eyes. But oh. that's tragic, of course. And the ophthalmologist examined him and he realized something very unique that these plexiglass shards were inert in his in the in the pilot's eyes they weren't causing the expected inflammation or infection and that's the inspiration that led to his invention of the artificial lens that will benefit all of us today that the ophthalmologist was named sir harold ridley so that book um was my was my first the first book i wrote that came out and it, it was successful and ever since then i had been asked by people, why don't you do that for the rest of medicine? You know, but ah. you know, I, I kind of just follow my passions. I was passionate about writing a novel about World War II in China to share all the things I learned in college. I was passionate about writing a, a, another historical novel called Repentance about the heroism of Japanese Americans in Europe during World War II. And during the pandemic, um, I, like many other physicians, was still seeing patients, but it was, if you recall, very challenging, right? Like there was, the world was kind of locked down. And I was constantly in fear that I would bring COVID home to my family. So like a lot of people, I, a lot of first responders or physicians, I kind of semi-quarantined myself in my house. So I come in a different entrance. I stay in a guest room. I'd eat in another room. I spent a lot of time in this bedroom. And after kind of satisfying all the binge watching of TV and Netflix that I wanted <laughs> to do, I started yeah. reading books about medical history. And it was incredible. There was great stories, which the book is full of. And that was when I got the inspiration because I had the time, I guess, during the early days of the pandemic to explore these and the stories write themselves. I mean, they're just incredible stories of maverick doctors who risk so much to do the things that um, and make the breakthroughs that help us today. Yeah, the book is is fun to read because it is it's you're a great storyteller. And what I learned about this though is every every bit of history that I, I knew nothing about, but there is this common thread of this maverick. It's this combination of this self-confidence from someone, but also luck. Reconcile yeah. those two things for me. Where do where does luck and where does self-confidence and bold action, where do those two collide? Well, it's very interesting. Napoleon said about his generals, I'd much rather you be lucky than good. And I think that it's also true sometimes that, you know, hard work, if you if you work hard, you can sometimes have more opportunities for luck to occur, right? So people have observed that as well. But I think if you look at the common thread of the discoverers in my book, um, being a maverick is very, very important. These are people who have the imagination and creativity to think outside the box. They may believe so strongly in their idea that they are willing to endure ridicule and setbacks to see it succeed. And there's so many examples. There was a guy named Werner Forsman, who in 1929 was a German medical intern. He had this crazy idea to catheterize the heart. His supervisor said, you can't do that. It's obvious that if you put anything foreign in the heart, you'll kill yourself because it'll cause an arrhythmia. So he did it on himself to prove it is incredible. Another, <laughs> another maverick. Here's a good example. Edward Jenner. He basically heard from 
milkmaids, hey, I've had cowpox. And because of that, it's kind of common knowledge that I'm immune from smallpox, which is a deadly disease. And so Jenner, who basically was the first to vaccinate, thought, well, why don't I just try this? There was a cowpox epidemic in his town. He got a milkmaid and took some, pus uh, took some samples from pustules on her hand and in instilled it in a kid, a kid named James Phipps. Wow. So this is an example where luck comes in. If this was totally unethical, he basically <laughs> exposed uh, this kid to smallpox. So he vaccinated with cowpox and then waited for the kid to heal. He got a little mild illness and then got better. And then he and then Jenner purposely inoculated him with deadly smallpox just yeah. to kind of validate a hunch. And of course, the story was great. He becomes one of the greatest medical discoveries in, in, in the world, saves millions and millions of lives because of this vaccination. But what if James Phipps had died? He would be a murderer. You know, so it's one of these things where you just don't know what can happen. For every success, there are many failures, obviously. So, but that's history. That's life. Yeah. Now your book is broken out into some of the major categories. Let me get to this here. So you, you focus on heart disease and diabetes, bacterial infection, viral infection, cancer, trauma, childbirth, which was just fascinating to me. One thing that jumped off the page, and I tend to forget about it, I'm, I'm in my mid-50s and um, you know came up through not a lot of scary things that could wipe out families, et cetera. But in the beginning of your book, you talked about your grandfather. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, your great-grandfather, born in 1893, died in 1977. Yeah. Your point on his lifespan and what has happened was just really has been hanging with me. Would you mind sharing that story? Because I think it sets up perfectly yeah. about where we're at. I think I wanted to convey how incredibly, incredibly rapid our medical advancements have been, have, have been, you know, and how technology, we were lucky to live in the last 150 years of incredible technological advancement. Yeah, in in the introduction to my book, I shared about how just in one lifespan, my great grandfather's, you know, he he was he was in Taiwan, so there was like there weren't cars around, there was there was no phone, there was no electric light, probably where he was living, and so horsepower was the main mode of transportation. And by the time he died in the seventies, we had been walking on the moon, you know, Unreal. we got to the moon in nineteen sixty nine. So just think about that incredible technological advance in one person's lifetime. And the same thing is true in medicine. You know, it, think of the turn of the century when the average lifespan might be, it might've been in the late forties and now is in the late seventies and people were dying from all manner of infectious diseases, which we have, uh, you know, surmounted or at least can manage now. Um, the invention of antibiotics, the discovery of antibiotics, you know, cancer treatments, so many things like diabetes that were death, a death sentence are now chronic manageable illnesses. Yeah. You know, uh, one of my uh, hobbies I like to do when I go back to my, my uh, hometown area in Minnesota in the summer, there's a lot of small town churches, Lutheran churches mm -hmm. scattered all around the prairie. And occasionally I'll just pull over and I'll just, I, I love looking at uh, headstones and cemeteries. I just find it interesting. And one thing I noticed is right around the, there's a lot of families in these small, mm. you know, cemetery plots, but a lot of kids, a lot of young infants and a lot of kids passed away in that, you know, turn of the century. And, and so that really puts a, puts a mark on it for me that we have advanced so much and we take a lot for granted, but tell me this though, we've, we've advanced so much, Andrew, 
is, is this a is this a guarantee? I mean, that we're going to be continuing to see this evolve and we're going to be curing things that we can't even imagine 50, 60, 70 years ago? If yes, or what what would get in the way? Yeah, I mean, that's that's an excellent, excellent observation. You know, I think medical history at least shows us that that that, that is not the case, that progress is inevitable. Uh, I try to make this point, you know, medical history is advanced in kind of fits and starts. There, there might be no progress in the field, and then suddenly a, a discoverer has an epiphany and that unlocks an entire new realm of discovery. Uh, just comparing the, um, the space race, for example, to medicine. So, you know, in, when Sputnik occurred in 1957, Americans got very panicky, right? And then Gagarin goes up and we're losing the space race. So Alan Shepard goes up for 15 minutes on a trip that lasts only 15 minutes in 1961. And in 1969, like we're talking eight years later, we're literally on the moon. And I'm sure if you ask an American at that time, well, what's next? You know, they probably believe we would be walking on Mars by the 90s or by 2000 at the latest, but that's not happened. And, and I think that it's an example of how progress is not inevitable. Now, I will say that today, the, the future of medicine is so bright. I think that just in the way that physics was the science that transformed the 20th century with the atomic age, biological sciences, I think, are going to be the main, uh, a main technological field of advancement in the 21st century. I mean, we have so many things that are happening with stem cells. We're growing organs with stem cells. Um, gene therapy, mRNA, like the vaccines that we've benefited from, uh, harness mRNA so that cells basically become factories that make whatever protein we want them to make. And of course, artificial intelligence is transforming oh. so many fields, including mine. Like a physician like myself, we may try our very best, but we're going to miss things on clinical exam. Um, you know, we might miss certain things uh, in a diagnosis. But if you have a computer that's literally read thousands I'm sorry, millions of fundus photographs of the retina, they can probably do a better job and make fewer mistakes than, than a physician, the same way that uh, drivers or pilots are, are fallible, you know, yeah. but computers are sometimes less fallible, obviously. So, well, okay. That's good. I mean, that's, that's really encouraging. It's not a guarantee, but it, it, what I'm hearing from that is be vigilant and to continue to, uh, to do what? Um, I think the point you're making here is uh, education. Um, sure. What, what, what are ways that we continue to make sure that we can have a fighting chance and making sure that reality comes, comes to pass? Absolutely. So we've got to, we've got to encourage scientists later in their careers. You know, we've got a kind of a problem in this country where PhD um, candidates and graduates don't really have uh, enough jobs in academic centers to do what they were trained to do. So in all fields of academia, there's a bunch of people who there's a certain number of people who become PhDs, but there aren't enough tenure track positions for them to do the science that they need to do. So in the humanities, people drop out and they become English teachers, Latin teachers, uh, editors, literary yeah. agents. In science, they go to yeah. industry, you know, <laughs> um, because it's more it's higher paying. So, the, you know, and b to be honest, PhD candidates are not paid very much. So. You know, what happens is we have a lot of really promising scientists. They were the best in their, in their schools, in their high schools, in their colleges. They go into PhD programs, but they drop out of the, of the positions that are put them in the best position to make actual discoveries in the future because they're not that well supported.
Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Okay. Now, as a layperson in Andrew, that that causes me concern. That makes me worried. The maverick is the common thread throughout all these discoveries. Are we creating a system now? I mean, just the world, does it just prevent or squash mavericks from taking hold and from being willing to take risks? Maybe not unethical risks, but I think you know you know where I'm going. First of all, it's very important to identify the mavericks who have the capacity to think outside the box and make incredible discoveries. Basically, they're, they're usually just brilliant people. They may be socially awkward or, or not fitting, uh, conform, not conforming in some other ways, but they are the people who sometimes will be the ones who make the breakthroughs. Interesting. Um, in the U.S., I think one of the most important aspects um, is the, you know, there's not only kind of an intellectual freedom in our universities, but also there's an important drive with um, private enterprise and capitalism that can be very beneficial. You know, there's a lot of pharmaceutical companies, as you know, that just want to make a lot of money, but also at the same time, they want to help people as well. So if you yeah. think about the vaccines uh, for COVID, you know, there was government support, but it was not the government that made the vaccines. It was Moderna, Pfizer, BioNTech. And it's really wonderful when the government and private enterprise can work together to make breakthroughs. There's a place for both. That's cool. Well, now the book, The Masters of Medicine, the Greatest Triumphs. And if you look at these mavericks through history, what are, what are some of the common traits that they had? Uh, what can yeah. we learn from them? Well, they're passionate about an idea, you know, and they're willing to suffer because they believe so strongly in that. So one great example is, uh, is Ignaz Semmelweis. He was a Hungarian obstetrician who discovered why so many women, mothers were dying from purple fever, which was childbed fever. What was happening was he was working in this massive maternity hospital in Vienna, and he realized which was common knowledge that the doctor's clinic had a very different death rate, maternal death rate than the midwife's clinic. There were two different clinics and the doctor's clinic had a much higher death rate and he, nobody could figure out why. It was just one of these things that people accepted. Mothers knew about this. They would try desperately not to be in the doctor's clinic and they would want to be in the midwife's clinic. The incoming patients were just assigned all, an alternate days to one or the other. Mothers would try to postpone their arrival at the hospital to make sure they were going to be uh, assigned to the midwife's clinic, which, which led to sometimes people giving birth in carriages or on the streets. It was crazy. So basically, some always discovered that doctors, because nobody understood antisepsis at this time in like the late 1840s, doctors were going around doing autopsies in the hospital and then going to the ward doing pelvic exams. And basically, inoculating mothers with germs and um and then they would get fevers and die and so he wow. realized gosh we should be washing our hands <laughs> it sounds so obvious but he had met a ton of resistance because gentlemen who became uh, doctors you know they it was unconscionable that they were not uh, hygienic you know it was insulting so he was driven because he felt so strongly about this he, he annoyed a lot of people. He wrote open letters to other leaders uh, in the field in Europe saying, I accuse you of being a murderer. Like, uh, I accuse you before God of murdering mothers. I mean, he became so um, indignant about this. He basically was drummed out of the field and he eventually went to an insane, was put in an insane asylum and he died there. Is that right? He is now, yeah, Ignaz Semmelweis. So he is now kind of a, a savior of mothers. I mean, there's 
university statues of him. It's, it, it's a story of where he was right. And yeah. he was so willing to, he was so willing to back up what he believed was right, that he was willing to unto his death, essentially. And these these people just believe so strongly that's an extreme example that they're willing to suffer great you know adversity and there's another example um nobody not to the same degree but there was a guy named andreas grunzig who basically was responsible for arguably the most um important medical advance of the 20th century i'm talking about cardiac catheterization which allowed people like my father to save people's lives from heart attacks grunzig had a dream that maybe I could open up people's clogged arteries if I put a balloon on a catheter and thread it into this tiny coronary artery. I mean, that's difficult, right? Like the 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 history of coronary angiography is is one full of like um, intrepid doctors, sometimes mistakes. You know, I, I mentioned uh, Werner Forsman, who was the first to catheterize his own heart. He kind of did a self experiment, and at that time, all he was thinking he could do was like just put medicines in the heart. But I'll just tell one brief story. There was a doctor named Mason Soans in the Cleveland Clinic who in the 50s was trying to do an aortogram, which is just do this simple dye around the heart. And he accidentally, right when he was power injecting the dye, the, the tip of the catheter, which goes flips around like a fire hose when you put the dye in, lodged in the ostia or the, the opening of one of the coronary arteries. And immediately this was considered like a very, very dangerous thing that would kill the patient because you've just, you're basically occluding coronary artery flow. You're fill, filling the coronary artery with kind of a toxic uh, dye, basically, in that large concentration. And the patient's heart actually stopped. He was getting ready to open the guy's heart to try to apply paddles to shock it back to life because that's, you couldn't do external defibrillation at the time. And the patient came back and he, he, he almost killed the patient. It was a horrible mistake. But then he realized, oh my God, what if, it was the first coronary angiography ever done. What if I used less <laughs> and a more dilute solution? I can actually um, image the coronary arteries. And this was a major breakthrough that helped us understand why heart attacks are occurring. So Unbelievable. You know, there's so many great examples. Yeah. And the, the book is just filled with those types of stories, which is just a lot of fun to watch. Uh, what would you hope people would uh, would think or do differently as a result of reading this this book, Andrew? Yeah, I really just want people to be inspired, just like the way I was. You know, this book, as I've said, it kind of writes itself because the stories are just so incredible. It's just impossible not to be, not to be enthralled by these discoveries. Um, it's amazing how recently our ability to treat illness and disease was just so terribly poor very recently. We owe so much to these maverick doctors who, you know, through perseverance, serendipity, sometimes their mistakes led to our greatest breakthroughs. I think one of my secret hopes, by the way, is that maybe there'll be a young person who reads this book and is inspired to go into medicine or research. And if only one person makes a discovery that helps all of us someday, um, I think that's the best possible outcome I can think of from writing this book. You know, one of my favorite stories in the book, and there are a lot of them, uh, but uh, President Garfield, uh, when <laughs> he was shot, I knew none of this history, but his attending doctor, Dr. William Bliss, um, yeah. was taking care of him and just some of the mistakes that were made in that treatment, looking back on it now, you know, what, hundred some years ago, fascinating to me. My point is just at a glance, it's just jam packed with stories you've never heard before. You like that story? That's one of my favorites. Oh, uh, it's, yeah. I mean, it's a great story. Um, I mean, didn't work out too well for Garfield, but no, um, you know, James Garfield was an incredible guy. 
you know, up from poverty, a lawyer, a college president, a world uh, civil war general, uh, congressman, and then he becomes like nominated for president, even though he wasn't even seeking the nomination um, at that uh, uh, at that uh, convention. But unfortunately, just four months or so into his presidency, he gets assassinated. He gets shot, and it's not necessarily the bullet that killed him. It's because the doctors at the time didn't understand antisepsis and they thought it was very important to find the bullet. So they would probe his wound in his back with their fingers, with unsterile probes. And it was just terrible. I mean, he languished for a couple months and then he died from infection, from overwhelming sepsis. So it, it was an example of the ignorance and arrogance of Americans at that time. Around that time, you know, Joseph Lister, who is credited with kind of discovering the importance of antisepsis, had come to the United States to kind of lecture on it. But again, like so many doctors uh, in America didn't believe that little tiny germs that you can't see were the reason why people were getting infected. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's it's an incredible story. So, Andrew, we've obviously been through the pandemic and there's been just such division everywhere on and on, you know, vaccines and CDC and everything, uh, pharmaceutical companies. And 100 years from now, what do you think? What will the history say about this time period that we're living in? Do you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a lot that uh we could have done better and we could be doing better. I think that these once in a century um, pandemics are very damaging. You know, the Spanish flu a hundred years ago killed a lot of people as well. Um, but this is the hope, the hope that I have in humanity is that we learn from our mistakes. You know, we cannot help but learn from what we've endured. Um, I think that you know, science has made incredible advances, partly because of this tragedy. You know, mRNA vaccines and mRNA in general has a has the promise of helping with so many diseases that have frustrated us and and hurt us for many years. Um, politically speaking, I, I I believe that our country can easily you know will survive. You know, I remember talking to my father about this time in the last maybe six years of political kind of divisiveness and upheaval. And he reminded me historically, I, I often go back to history, you know, he reminded me that, you know, there was once a presidential election and the outcome of the election literally split the country in two. Okay, that's Abraham Lincoln. And he reminded me in the 1960s, people who were leaders in our country were literally getting assassinated. That's right. Right. And and we survived these these tragedies, these terrible things, JFK's assassination, Martin Luther King's assassination, Robert F. Kennedy's assassination. You know, th those were periods that were worse in, in some ways in the political life of our country. I, I believe we live in a wonderful country. You know, the 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 <laughs> I feel so lucky to be living at this time in this place. You know, there's a reason why people want to come to the United States. Our, it's our system of the rule of law. Um, it's it's the resourcefulness that Americans have always had is what brought us here um, from all over the world. So I'm optimistic. You know, I think that the, like everything else in history, there's mistakes, but we what what yeah. we but we um, try to correct. And uh, I have to believe that my children's future is is going to be bright and, and all good. of our children's futures. 
I think it's a needed perspective because when you're living in it, you can fall into the trap of thinking it's never been worse than right now. But no, if you look at it through history, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's certainly not my, true. <laughs> yeah, I talked to my dad about the 60s, same type of message. And right, I think we fought something called the Civil War, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean there's, a, there's a lot, you know, we have a lot of first world problems. I mean, profligacy with government spending, for example, is very concerning. The the, the debt is astro- is beyond astronomical. It's unfathomable, right. you know, and I think that these are, but these are not, <laughs> these are not insurmountable problems. Climate change is a, hor- is a very, very difficult problem, but, you know, it's kind of like what JFK said, you know, these are problems that were made by man and they can be solved by man. But it just takes, it's going to take a ton of effort and really good leadership. You know, leadership uh, is so crucial. Darren, can I tell a story here? You can edit it out yeah. if you don't. Okay, great. No, you go. Leadership is so crucial. You know, I, for example, I, I love Japan. I, I love the Japanese people. But when I think about studying World War II, I'm reminded of how political leadership is one of the most important things in human history. You have a people who are so um, kind, courteous, um, obedient to authority. You know, when the Fukushima nuclear power plant goes up, you don't see riots. You see people literally queuing up orderly fashion. You know, this is part of the wonderful, um, this is one of the wonderful aspects of Japanese culture. But when you get the wrong political leadership in positions, like during the run-up to World War II, people do not question they fall in line. They follow these leaders to their the country's doom. And right. so, you know, we need political leaders who are willing to be genuine, honest, and, you know, so less self-interested often than they are. And it's not a new challenge. The United States, the American experiment is full of this challenge between self-interest and the common good, right? There's a reason why we laud George Washington, well, George Washington, who was our Cincinnatus, who basically voluntarily left power and set the stage for all of the presidents after him, you know, so um, it, we live in a great country, we're lucky, but we just need to keep fighting to keep it as good as it's been and, and to make it better. You know, if uh, I've got a few years on you, a lot of years on you, Not but uh, how, how about this, when you officially retire, you call me and I'm going to okay. rent an RV and I'll swing oh, by and we'll, we'll go, we'll go to the Lewis and Clark trail and a few civil war battlefields out your way. How's that sound? That'd be great. That'd be awesome. All right. <laughs> Andrew, uh, every episode, I, I always ask my guests, what's your, I dare you challenge for all of us. So what do you got? You would, you would, uh, I dare us to do what? Um, you know, I think something that was meaningful to me as I was growing up was, I felt that there was value in having kind of a, a five-year plan or a 10-year plan or even a 15-year plan in your life to help people um, think farther than the challenges of our day-to-day. You know, where do you see yourself? What position would you like to have? What does your family look like in that period of time? Is there a goal you'd like to see yourself accomplish? Um, it could be to run a marathon, build an organization, learn to cook, play the organ. You know, you could say, I want to read a book every month and I'm going to commit to that. You could be a volunteer in your community or, you know, have kids and raise them the best way you can to be good people or write a book, you know? So I remember in the early 2000s, I made like a 10-year plan and said to myself, you know, in 10 years, I want to have a published novel. And at the same time, I had other goals. You know, I wanted to have kids, raise my family, become a retina surgeon that's helping to save uh, the sight of people. And when I decided to write a book, I, I didn't know anyone who had ever done that, you know, but I had trained myself to work hard 
and I had been accustomed to kind of delayed gratification. And I said to myself, as long as I'm passionate about this project, I'm going to enjoy doing it. Um, and what's the worst that can happen, right? The worst that can happen is nothing comes of, of it. And all I've lost is the time that I spent trying to write this book. And I decided I could live with that. And the last thing I'd say is to young people in particular, to something my dad told me when I was young, he said, look around at all the jobs in the world, you know, regular jobs, yes, but also CEOs, elected officials, journalists, professors, even like in the entertainment industry, someday every one of those jobs will belong to you or your classmates or your generation. You guys will be in those roles and there's no reason why you cannot be that person. All you have to do is kind of make a plan to get there and then just commit yourself to trying to find ways to reach that goal. And I felt that that was, you know, valuable because even today, like people I know are like in the highest levels of governments, um, you know, writing movies. One of my friends wrote the new um, Elemental Disney movie that came out. And, you oh, know, cool. it's it's amazing what uh, what we finally get to do now that we're kind of old, I guess. Yes. So, you know, when you're young, it's hard to, to see, but the reality is we, we're lucky to live and so blessed to live in a country where we are not limited by 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 anything but how, you know, our dreams and our, our, and our hard work and how far that can take us. So, Andrew, this has been a lot of fun. Um, we could talk for hours on this and I'd love to have you back in the future. But thank you so much for thank sharing you. your passion. Yeah, your passion for history and how you're really putting this into into work in some really visible ways. It's been a real Appreciate pleasure it. having you here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, that was Dr. Andrew Lamb. What an interesting guy. I can't wait to fire up that RV. Uh, we're, I'm going to swing over to Massachusetts, a long way from Idaho, but we are going to have one epic road trip. And so if you want to join us, <laughs> drop me an Instagram message and we'll see what kind of, how big the RV needs to be, okay? A true Renaissance man, surgeon, dad, uh, loves history and doing something about it. So what did you take away from the conversation with Dr. Lamb? I mean, there's so much there. The one thing I'm, I'm leaving with is this uh, mindset of having delayed gratification about putting in the work. And when you put in the work, luck is often a byproduct of hard work. And that's been that way throughout history. And it is that way today. Thank goodness. Now, if you enjoyed the episode, I invite you to share this with others. Who are you thinking of right now? It could be one person. It could be 10. Take that extra step. The growth we're seeing in the iDairy podcast is because of you. And also, I invite you to subscribe so you do not miss an episode. And follow us on Instagram at iDareYouPod. There you're going to find exclusive content you won't find anywhere else, including video snippets of this interview. Thank you again for listening. I know you've got a lot of choices in digital media. My goodness, there's never been more options that we have. And yet, you found your way here to the iDairy podcast. And I just want you to know, I appreciate it very much. Episode 65 is next week. It's going to be another great guest. And I'm getting messages from many of you about how you'd like to hear more uh, episodes with me, just the solo episodes, and they are coming. There's just a few guests that I want to get out into the wild. Um, and so stay tuned, okay? And, and thank you again for listening. And I will see you back here next week on the I Dare You podcast.